I'm really excited. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're on a really neat passage today for Palm Sunday, a passage about what is the greatest commandment. And uh, excited to share that with you. And I'm super excited about next Sunday. Uh, of course, it's Resurrection Sunday. If your pastor can't get excited about that, you need a new pastor. Um, so super pumped, though, about uh, sharing a text that as we kind of walk through Mark's gospel, I think is perfectly appropriate because uh, Jesus is uh, having this conversation. He turns the tables and he's going to ask uh, the crowds what the scribes think about this passage of scripture where in Psalm 110, we read that uh, the Messiah is not only David's son, but Jesus says in the, in the Holy Spirit, David said that he calls him Lord. Well, what is that all about? And I'm excited to share not only what Jesus is uh, implying in that conversation, but also what Paul explicitly says in the book of Romans. So we'll kind of have a foot in both texts next week. And in Romans chapter 1, he says that he was descended from David, that is Jesus, was descended from David according to the flesh. He was the son of David. But that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by what? His resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was a son of David and son of God, and he was declared to be marvelous, marvelously so because of his resurrection from the dead. So I think those two tie perfectly together, and I'm excited to share that with us next Sunday. But before we get to Resurrection Sunday, that reminds me that this week is Good Friday, all right, so we've had Palm Sunday today. Friday, we're going to have Good Friday at the Wharf. I hope you've made use of the yard signs and the cards. Take all of those today and use them up and share them with the community and be there. And please, pray for good weather. Uh, pray that we have a nice, beautiful day out there. Uh, bring a lawn chair, okay? Just a couple things to keep in mind. And then lastly, uh, if you would, carpool there. Okay, so if you have another family at the church that you could carpool with or another friend, you could meet here at Leonardtown Baptist and then you could uh, ride together down to the wharf because there's just limited parking uh, down there. Or you could all park at the Ferrens house, I guess. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but anyway, this is uh, coming up this Friday. Looking forward to that. And also uh, just looking forward to next Sunday. want to remind you that we have a breakfast. So there's no Bible fellowships next Sunday, but there will be fellowship. Amen. All right. And there'll be lots of good, yummy food. So if you come 845 to 945, there'll be all kinds of yummy stuff in the CLC. Chance maybe to get to know people that you wouldn't normally have the opportunity to interact with. Uh, enjoy that time together for about an hour, and then we'll start kind of cleaning things up and make our way in here for our 1015 service. All right. By now, hopefully you found Mark chapter 12. We'll be in verse 28 today, and so I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes approached... When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. Please be seated. This passage is a great place to go if you're looking for a summary of the Ten Commandments. If you're looking for a summary of the Ten Commandments, in fact, oftentimes that's about the only thing we tend to think of when we come to uh, this passage. We think of it mainly for its great pithy and uh, simple uh, summarization. Love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you were here, when we did our study on the Ten Commandments, you will recall the first four commandments relate to our love for God. You shall have no other gods before me. Some of you should be able to repeat this with me by now. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. These are all related to how we love God, how we worship and honor Him. And then the theologians call the second table of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Honor your father and your mother. Uh, Do not, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, and you shall not covet. These all relate to how we love others. And so when Jesus says, you shall uh, have no other gods before me, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's summarizing that first table. And then when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's summarizing that second table. But this summary of the law uh, is not just sitting on its own, like go to Mark 12 and find the summary of the Ten Commandments. It's sitting in a greater context. And so today, I want us to seek to understand the context of what's taking place. Remember, we are in the middle of Holy Week. We're actually in the text beyond Sunday, beyond Palm Sunday. And we're in this series of controversies that Jesus and the religious leaders are having around in uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And what's notable about this controversy is that the scribe is a surprising scribe. Now, why do I call this a surprising scribe? Why is he surprising? Because he's not hostile towards Jesus. This is the first of the interactions where the religious leader that comes to Jesus doesn't seem like he's coming to trap him. I mean, it said explicitly in the previous ones, they were seeking to trap him in his words. This scribe, if we look at verse 28, we see he approaches and he's, he's hearing Jesus and the Sadducees debating, and he sees that Jesus answered them well. So we're given to understand that this scribe had a respect for Jesus and at least the way he was handling himself in that previous debate with the Sadducees. Perhaps he was more of a Pharisaic mind. Of course, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and he liked the way that Jesus was able to kind of correct and uh, tell the Sadducees, no, there, there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection. And so this surprising scribe, he comes and he asks Jesus, what is the greatest of the commandments? Now, this was the subject of superlatives. 
that scribes are really, really good at discussing. They love to ask the question, what is the greatest commandment? Probably because uh, this is a legal question. And as scribes, they love to interact with the law. And so this scribe is doing something very, very natural for the Jewish law keepers because there were something like 613 laws in the Old Testament. And so naturally what kind of comes out of that is a sense of, well, how do you prioritize all these? What's the most important of them? That's kind of a natural question to ask. There's an anecdote about a famous rabbi that was once approached by a Gentile. And the Gentile said to him, you can make me a proselyte, you can make me a convert to the Jewish faith and believe in your God if you can explain to me the entirety of the law while I stand on one foot. Because, of course, he knew the law was extensive. And the rabbi is said to have uh, told him some sort of negative version of the golden rule, something like, don't do to others what you would find uh, detestable or hateful to have done to you. And the rest of the Torah is commentary, is what he said. So it's a pretty good stab at it, but this is the type of question scribes like to do. You know, they like to debate these things as lawyers would love to do. And so this scribe comes and he asks on the question of superlatives, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers this question by starting with the Shema. He starts with the Shema. He goes right to the place where every Israelite, every Jew would have known. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema is a a Hebrew word that uh, kind of is the word for listen or hear or listen to what God is saying. And the Shema would have been a part of the scripture that every God-fearing Jew would have known. They would have repeated it. Every morning and every evening, they would have worn it, many of them, as a little phylactery, uh, a little tiny leather box that they would have put on their forehead. Godly houses would have had the Shema rolled up in a tiny piece of paper. Have you ever seen this in a mezuzah? And it's kind of tilted on the doorpost. They took it quite literally to have it on their foreheads, to have it on their gateposts. The Shema was everywhere and in every part of Jewish life. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, In verse 4, you see what Jesus is referring to. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what follows comes after this identification of who God is. And the command is, love the Lord your God, verse 5, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And he goes on, these are the words that I'm giving you today to be in your heart. You're supposed to repeat them to your children, talk about them when you're sitting down, when you lie down, when you go on the road, everywhere and every way we are to teach and train our children about who God is and how to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says that this is the greatest command. Every aspect of our life is about loving the Lord our God. Jesus starts with the Shema, heart, soul, mind. How often have you heard sometimes, at least I have, people say, I don't really, I love God, but I just really don't understand why we have to read so much or study so much or the book. It's hard to study. I don't, I don't know if I'm uh, intellectual like that. You know, I just, I want to love God and kind of be loosey-goosey and feel that. But this, Jesus says we're supposed to love God with our minds, Apply our minds to loving him and love him with our strength as well. 
all of our bodily powers. And those of you who were here at work day yesterday, <laughs> I can see some of you, you loved God with all of your strength. And I praise God for that. This idea of heart, soul, mind, and strength, you could do a word study. You could try and find out more. And I would encourage you to do something like that. But the reality is, it's speaking of a whole. It means every aspect of your life. There is no part of your life that is not due in honor and worship toward God. A picture of us fully devoted to loving him. This is the greatest commandment. But note that the greatest commandment has a second stipulation appended to it. A second stipulation. Jesus doesn't stop with, love the Lord your God. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Give me one, Jesus. And he replies, he starts with the Shema, and then he gives the greatest command to love the Lord our God. But beyond that, he continues into a second stipulation, which is love your neighbor as yourself. He says there is no commandment greater than these. He appends this second stipulation to the first commandment. There is an inseparability of the two, if you understand it correctly. Because if you love God, the first four commands, then you will love God's image bearers, commands five through ten. If you love God, you will love God's image bearers. So you wouldn't want to bring harm to someone who bears the image of God. You wouldn't murder somebody who's carrying around God's image. You wouldn't steal from them. You wouldn't harm them. So loving our neighbor is an extension of loving God. If God commands us not to do something out of love for him, we would want to keep that command. And if he commands us to do something out of love for him, we would want to follow and obey. And God requires mercy, justice, love, kindness towards others, gentleness, and so on. So this second command is inseparable in many ways. Love for neighbors is rooted in our love for God. Nobody but Jesus had previously brought these two commands together like this. The CSB Study Bible points that out, and it says, but it becomes a standard for the way that followers of Jesus think about the commandments. And in fact, if you think about how the New Testament expounds upon the rule of love, that love is the fulfillment of the law, I think of passages like Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, or Galatians 5, 14, and you could think of others as well, that this uh, concept that Jesus shared, that loving God and loving neighbors becomes the theme of New Testament uh, law-keeping. In a sermon that was preached at the Southern, uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary back in 2012, the president of the seminary recalls how Don Carson, the author of our For the Love of God books, he was there preaching a chapel message, and he was talking about this second, and second of the greatest commandments to which Jesus is referring. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Leviticus chapter 19, because Jesus, when he says to love your neighbor as yourself, that is the context that he's pointing back to. Leviticus 19 and verse 18 Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. 
This is the text to which Jesus is referring when he says to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Dr. Carson did was he kind of helped uh, those chapel students and helping us today to consider the context of what love for your neighbor looks like. It's all through Leviticus 19. If you just kind of gaze with me, that's why I had you turn there. I want you to just kind of run your eye down the verses as I kind of walk through. For example, verse 10, we're to care for the poor. Loving your neighbor as yourself means caring for the poor. Don't strip your vineyard bare. Don't gather everything that falls. You leave some of it for the poor and for the resident alien. Again, I am the Lord. So the first and greatest commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Self-revelation. And then he says, love the Lord your God. He says here, love your neighbor as yourself. Care for the poor. I am the Lord. This is why you do it. Because of who God is. And then he continues, don't steal. It's right there in verse 11. Do not steal. Pretty straightforward. Don't act deceptively. Verse 11, lie to one another. Be fair in your business dealings. You can look at verse 14. Don't don't curse the deaf. So care for the deaf. Care for the blind. This is a way to love neighbor. Verse 14. Deal justly with everyone. Verse 15. Avoid slander. Again, continue running your eyes down. Verse 16 says, avoid slander. Don't jeopardize the life of your neighbor. That's loving your neighbor. Don't harbor hatred against your brother. Verse 17. Rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his and your good? Do you often think of that as loving your neighbor? Rebuking them for their good? Like if you see they're going to go off into the ditch somewhere, calling them back and saying, no, you're going in the wrong way. That's loving. That's loving your neighbor. All of this teaches us don't bear grudge. Verse 18. In summary, what Dr. Carson says is God doesn't leave it up to our imagination what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are helpful ways of remembering what it means to love others. So Jesus starts with the Shema. We have the greatest command and the second stipulation, love your neighbor as yourself. But then as we continue to understand in its context what was taking place with this scribe back in Mark 12, we see how the scribe's spiritual insight shortens the span between seeker and savior. The scribe's spiritual insight shortens the span, if you will, between seeker and savior. He says to Jesus in verse 32, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So what is the spiritual insight of the scribe? It's the idea that loving God is more about a relationship with him than a long list of rules. Loving neighbor is fulfilling love of God and caring for others, doing rightly and justly. All of that is far more important than outward and empty ritual. So I think this is a great place for us to kind of turn and look inwardly and consider how this text would apply to us. What does this mean for us? I want to make a statement in four parts, and then I'm going to break it apart 
into each of its constituent parts. They don't feel like you have to get every little bit of these four parts because we're going to go point by point through it. But here's the kind of overview. Relationships mean more than ritual. And a right perspective can get you really close to the kingdom. But further reflection on these commands reveals our own radical shortcoming, which should prompt us to repent and be reconciled to God through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Relationship means more than ritual. So loving God, loving neighbor is more important than sacrifice. A right perspective can lead you really close to the kingdom. But further reflection on these commands, the love God, love neighbor, reveals a radical shortcoming in ourselves, which should prompt us to repent and be reconciled to God through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So let me walk us through that today. First of all, relationship means more than ritual. We've seen that. Let's look again at verse 33, where the scribe says, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's a little, I find it a little comical thinking about this scribe. He's like, commending Jesus, it's a little ironic to me. You know, you've got this, you know, the king of the universe is right before you, and you're like, yeah, you've got this, Jesus. And then Jesus kind of turns around later, and I think it's ironic when he says, you know, you're really close to the kingdom too, you know? It's like, you're getting there, buddy. You know, we're going to keep working with you here, okay? So, but the, the scribe is right. He's right. Actually, Jesus does commend him for this understanding, That to obey is better than sacrifice. That's throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture. We know that to be true. God wants our obedience and our love for him far more than rituals. You can come to church. You can give regularly. You can read your Bible every day. And you could just be going through the motions. But ritual is not the same thing as love. You see, as we've talked about in biblical ethics, we discuss the idea that a moral event takes place at the intersection of right character, right conduct, and right goals. Now, while your conduct might be on point, okay, you might be outwardly not murdering anybody, outwardly not committing adultery, okay? You might have all of the outward signs of obedience, But our obedience is more than just conduct. It's, do you have a right heart on the inside of character? And is your obedience for the goal of glorifying God and loving him with everything that you do? Or perhaps are you receiving lots of praise because you're a really good person? And maybe you like the way that feels when people say, wow, you did it right. You are a good good guy or a good woman, right? So we can do things for the wrong reasons. So if you lack an internal heart of love towards God, and you lack a goal of bringing God glory, then your deeds are actually just empty rituals that God would rather not deal with. God is not interested in you checking a box. God is not interested in rote or thoughtless participation in rituals. God cares deeply about your love to him and love for others. And while we're on the subject, yes, there is a way you can love others in this kind of ritualistic outward sense where we feign love to other people. We flatter them. 
right? Like you, you can look like you care for somebody on the outside. You can say all the right things. And inside, you really, you really hope that they fail at what they're doing. Or you really are thinking, you know, I don't really like this guy, but I got to kind of butter up to him at work. So I'm just going to kind of pretend like everything's okay. It's called flattery. The Bible also speaks of that, where our lips are full of deceit. And so we can outwardly look like we love others, but inwardly harbor grudges and hatred toward them. So Jesus commends this idea that relationship to God and others is more important than ritual obedience, and that a right perspective can actually get you really close to the kingdom. Now, I hesitated to put that in the outline because it just didn't feel right at first. That a right perspective about the law can get you closer to the kingdom? I would be hesitant if it wasn't exactly what Jesus said. He said, you are not far from the kingdom. So what does he mean? Like, let's try and understand this. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You, you see, if you think that keeping a list of rules is a way to earn God's favor as though God owes you something because of your obedience to his commands, like it's a checklist and that God owes you, for your obedience, then you're far from the kingdom of God. But if you understand that God cares more about the heart and cares about your love for him and love for others, then you are closer to the kingdom. So there is a contrast. There's a comparison. And one way that helped me understand this was thinking about the rich young ruler. Like we just studied that recently. And so just think with me back to the comparison between the rich young ruler and somebody like, say, uh, blind Bartimaeus. The rich young ruler, he came up to Jesus and he said, you know, uh, I've got it all together. Everything looks fine. You know, can you, can you let me be part of your followers? And Jesus says, you know, you're lacking one thing. You know, go sell everything you have. And he leaves very, very discouraged. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's really hard for rich people to inherit the kingdom of God. To me, that's like a distance, right? You're farther from the kingdom when you have wealth in the way. Why is that? Well, because you're not like blind Bartimaeus, right? Nothing was getting in his way. When Jesus passes by, he says, save me, Hosanna, son of David, help me. And they're like, shh, don't you know this is not socially cool? Like, you're not supposed to do that. He's like, I can't even see you. I don't care. I've got nothing to lose. Save me. And he realized his own desperate need of a savior and help. The rich person could rely on his wealth and other things to kind of feel good about himself and feel like he was making it. And the poor person was that much closer because of that lack of uh, self-awareness and and, uh, an idea of like a full dependency on Jesus to save. I think the same is true here. If you think of religion as something where you can check it off and like, if I'm just on the whole better at keeping the Ten Commandments than not, and like, if I can look across the way and say, well, I'm not as bad as they are, then God's going to, you know, he owes me a little something because I was pretty good in life. That's a, that you're far from the kingdom. Your understanding is far, far away from over here where you recognize you're a sinner. And you recognize nobody's going to keep 613 regulations perfectly in the Old Testament. And you recognize that even the Ten Commandments or even just these two are impossible to keep, which we're going to get to in a moment. And you say, no, God cares about our hearts. He wants us to turn and repent and love him and love others. And he will do the work I don't have to keep a list of rules. Then you're closer 
to the kingdom. I think that's what we're talking about here is this proximity to the kingdom. Jesus says, you're close. So the, the reality is this, this person was, this scribe was really, really close to the kingdom. But on further reflection of these two commands, it would reveal for all of us a radical shortcoming. Why, why do I say that? Because if we just look at the commands themselves, we will see that the measure upon which we will be judged, the measure of the kind of love we are to have for God is with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. It is the measure of entirety. We all fail to meet that measure of love for God and radical love for others. Charles Spurgeon, when he was reflecting on this passage, said, quote, Oh, that we might by this commandment be smitten to the earth, that our self-righteousness might be broken in pieces by this great hammer of the first and greatest commandments. Do you feel the weight of not being able to love God the way you would want to, to not love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. If we reflect, we understand that none of us do that. It goes against both scripture and the evidence of experience to say that somebody can love God perfectly in this life. None of us do. We are all fallen and we fail to love God in this way. There are manifest testimonies to this in scripture. For example, There is no righteous man on the earth who does not sin, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. David says, every man living is unrighteous before the Lord, Psalm 143. Job affirms the same idea in chapter 9 and in chapter 25 of Job. In other words, we all fall short of loving God this way, of glorifying God this way. So who then can be saved? Like the rich young ruler, the question, then who of us can be saved? Well, as the answer Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Just one more uh, theologian, as he reflected on this idea of loving God perfectly, Augustine said that in this life, we will never love God perfectly because love follows knowledge. And we can't know God perfectly, think of Paul, says we see in a mirror dimly now. We don't understand. But if we knew more of who God is, if we knew him better, we would love him more. Just like your relationship grows with your spouse as you get to understand and know them and who they are more and more. So if you want to love God more with more of your heart, more of your soul, more of your mind, more of your strength, get to know him. But as Augustine says, we will never fully know him in this life, and so thus we can never fully love him the way he is due of love. The point of all this is to say, when we think deeply and reflect on the command to love God wholeheartedly, it does reveal a radical shortcoming. Nobody loves God like that, and nobody loves neighbor like they love themselves. So it should prompt us, fourthly and lastly today, as we consider this text and apply it to our lives, it should prompt us to repent and be reconciled to God 
through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom, he says to this man. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom. See, the irony is this scribe was not far from the kingdom in a couple of ways. First, in his understanding that to obey is better than sacrifice. But secondly, he was not far from the king. The king was right there in front of him. This is Mark's gospel. is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 1, chapter 1. In verse 14 of chapter 1, when proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And what does he say right after that? Repent and believe the good news. You see, to not be far from the kingdom of God would be a tragedy if it ended there. Mark's gospel kind of leaves us with a cliffhanger. What happens to the scribe? He was not far. Did he get in? Is he part of the kingdom? Well, I think it's to cause us to be reflective. What about you? Are you going to be in the kingdom? I'm here to tell you the only way to enter God's kingdom is the way the king said, repent and believe. Repent of what? Repent of your sin. Acknowledging that we are sinful, that we do fall short of loving God and loving others the way we should. It's our duty to love God. And the measure of that love is supposed to be total and full. And the claim upon which that is made is that he is our God. You shall love the Lord your God. You owe your life. We owe our very being, our sustenance, preservation, everything we have, we owe to him. And we fail to give him all glory and honor, to love him and to love others. And so the response we must have is repent of that sin of rejecting him and ignoring him in this world that he created, not doing what he requires of us in his law, as the catechism says, namely to love others and love him wholeheartedly. So we repent, which means to turn 180 degrees from our sin and from ourself and to turn toward him. And then Jesus says, believe. Believe this good news. What is the good news? The good news of the gospel is the gospel that's preached here every Sunday, that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood for sinners like you and me. He gave his life as a, to pay the penalty for the sins that we committed. We deserve to pay that penalty, but he paid it on our behalf at Calvary. And then he rose victoriously on the third day, which is what we will celebrate next Resurrection Sunday. And indeed, we celebrate every Sunday. Jesus died for sins, the sin of not loving him and the sin of not loving others. And Jesus rose victoriously as conqueror of the grave, defeater of sin and death, so that we could have everlasting life and we can enter the kingdom. So as you consider this great commandment and the second stipulation, I wonder, would the Holy Spirit be convicting you, convincing you of your need to repent and believe and place your faith in Jesus, the Redeemer. Because hear me, apart from a Redeemer, well, we may be close, if you will, not far from the kingdom of God, but completely outside of it. It's like an on-off switch. You're either in or you're out. 
You could be really close, but completely outside of it. A spiritual insight might shorten the span, so to speak. But the reality is that span is still an infinite gap. It's an infinite gap without the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross. Reconciling God and man like the Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the, uh, the Christmas hymn is coming to mind. He came to bridge that infinite gap between us and God. And so I invite you today, place your faith and trust in Jesus if you've never done so. And those of you who have, I pray that you're reminded today of what it is that God's law requires of us. I pray that we walk in that law not to earn the favor of God, because we understand that we can never earn by obedience, but because he has paid the price and because he has paved that way and because of his righteousness, in the spirit, we obey out of love. And we are free from the law, but we abide by it, fulfilling the law in him and by his strength. So that's my prayer for you. If you're a believer, it's that you will see and love God wholeheartedly and that you will try and give everything you can to love your neighbor as yourself, not to earn, but out of love for the Savior. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to live a life of obedience, to pay the penalty for the sins that we owe, to shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. Lord, we thank you that he did not stay in the grave, that he rose victoriously as first fruits of our resurrection hope, that he ascended to the right hand and is ruling and reigning now, and that he will come again. Father, I thank you for this time of worship around your word. I thank you for the very clear, understandable priority of these two commands. Father, it's very simple. We are to love you with everything we have. Our whole being is to your glory. And we are to love others the way we would want to be loved. Father, it seems so very simple, and yet, as we've reflected today, we, we know our faults, we know our shortcoming, we know our sin. So I thank you for the forgiveness that's found. I thank you that you did not abandon us in our sin, Lord, that you did not consume us in your wrath, but that you sent Jesus to pay the price, to receive the wrath that we deserve. And you've given us eternal life in him. Father, I pray that someone here today who doesn't know you would place their faith in Christ today and recognize that they can be forgiven of their sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to your word, to be obedient to your commands. Lord, not to earn salvation, but because we love you and because of what you've done to save us. 
Father, thank you again for this time as we worship you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in everything that's been said and done so far. In Jesus' name, amen.